in primarily in Genesis chapter 21. And then if you want to take your finger and hold it there and flip to Galatians chapter 4, we'll also be in Galatians for the last point of the sermon today as we look at a few verses there that have a direct impact or direct relation to the story that we're going to look at today. But in the text that we have this morning from Genesis chapter 21, we finally come to God's fulfillment of the promise that he made with Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. If you remember, for the last nine chapters, we've been marching through the ups and downs of Abraham's life and how God called him out of the land of Ur to go into the land of Canaan and to uh, trust him that he would give him a blessing. And along the way, God has done very little in the way of that promise to show that he is able to fulfill the promise. Now, there have been little indications along the way. God has uh, protected Abraham through many things. He's, a, he's re- helped him, enabled him to rescue his, his nephew Lot. But as far as the promise of making Abraham a blessing, really all we have from God is just three different restatements of that blessing. And with each restatement of the blessing, God gets a little more specific each time. So in Genesis chapter 12, all God tells Abraham is get your family together, pack up the RV and head out to Canaan or whatever the the prehistoric version of an RV is. I don't know what that, I guess if you watch the Flintstones, you might know what a prehistoric version of RV is, but whatever it was, said pack up, head to the land of Canaan, and I will show you what I'm going to do. Well, he gets to Canaan, he waits and he waits and he waits and nothing happens. And you remember Abraham with one chapter shows this great act of faith and with the very next chapter shows this terrible lack of faith. And so Abraham along the way tries different things to see if he can fulfill God's blessing for him. But then God restates the the promise in chapter 15 and he tells him not just that he'll make him a blessing, but he tells him how he's going to make him a blessing. He says that I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. You remember he took him out and said, look at the stars in the sky. Can you number them? That's how many descendants you're going to have. So now Abraham knows, okay, I'm going to have descendants. But how am I going to have descendants? And then finally, in Genesis chapter 18, God restates the promise again by saying that this time next year, remember he comes to Abraham as a man and he, uh, and so he has a lunch with Abraham under the oaks of Mamre. And there God restates this promise and says that this time next year, Sarah will have a child and you will call his name Isaac. He gets to the point where he's finally specific enough to give him a time and to give him a name. And all of those promises are fine and well and good, but so what if God is not faithful to keep His promises? What do all the promises in the world mean if God is not able 
or is not willing to ultimately fulfill his promises to Abraham. Have you ever had someone like that? Someone who loved to make promises but, but was rarely caught being faithful to fulfill them? In fact, I would dare to say that most people in one way or another, are just not very good. I just noticed my collars flipped up. Uh, are not very good at keeping promises. Now, there are some promises that we do pretty good at. You know, hopefully, faithful to keep our promises to our, our marriage partner. Hopefully, we're faithful to keep our promises to the church. But there are many times when we make a promise and we fail miserably to do it. Perhaps... You're like that. Perhaps you tell people that you're going to help with something and then you either forget about it or really you didn't want to do it to start with. So you just don't show up that day to help. Perhaps you plan to give to support a particular ministry or a particular effort. And then the going gets tough and it just gets too hard to provide. So you renege on your promise or maybe you even make promises to God that you don't keep. Lord, if you'll just get me out of this situation I'll do X. I don't know if you've ever done that. I'll be honest, I've done that. I don't, I don't mind admitting that. We, and you, if you get desperate enough, you get to the point where you're, you want to bargain with God. And so when it comes to God, we can't help but assume He's like us. We can't help but think, well, if I'm inconsistent in keeping my promises, then maybe God is too. And I think that's what Abraham along the way probably thought about God. Because Abraham stunk at keeping his promises. He was not at all a promise keeper. In fact, if you remember, twice now we've seen Abraham try to give his wife away as a, as a, a way to escape judgment and punishment of a king or whomever. We know that Abraham stinks at keeping his promises. He is, he's unfaithful even in the least of things. But God is the only person in all of the universe who is faithful to keep his promises. So in our text today, we find God fulfilling his promise to give Abraham a son. And in this story, we find two different sons of Abraham. We find the son of promise and we find the son of sin. Now, in looking at this passage, I want to consider three points. The first point is the son of promise. The second point is the son of works. And lastly, we see an analogy of grace. And so let's read Genesis chapter 21 verses 1 through 21. And then I'll pray and we'll get into these three points. Genesis chapter 21, verse 1, God's word says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when he, his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, 
God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with his, her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, also with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of the Lord called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make, in, make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin and water, uh, with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took, the, took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we understand that you keep your promises. Lord, we see from this very text that you are faithful, even when we think all of our resources have been expended even when we have tried desperately to fulfill your promises for you, yet you are still faithful <coughs> and, and good to us, and you keep your promises in your time and for your purposes. So, Father, give us understanding today as we seek to know that you are the God of promise, that you are the God who is faithful and the God who walks with us even when we are unable to walk ourselves. Father, give us strength Give us courage to go out from this place and to proclaim this word. Give me the words to say that I would encourage and build up and take away those words that would distract or lead astray. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the first thing that we want to see from this passage is the son of promise. If you notice in verses 1 through 7 in this passage, there are two things that I want you to see. Number one, I want you to see the fulfillment of the promise. And secondly, I want you to see the joy of the promise. First, we see that God is faithful to fulfill his promise to Abraham 
in a very real and practical way. We see the, in, in verses 1 and 2 that God causes Sarah to conceive. Now, I don't want you to forget or miss the absolute impossibility of this. Sarah's womb was already infertile. We know that from the beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 11, that Sarah is unable to have children. But then we found out back in Genesis chapter 18 that not only is she infertile, but now she's turned 90 years old and she hits menopause. So she is not just infertile, but now because of the timing, she is no longer able able to have children and it is virtually impossible. Yet, with God, as we learned in chapter 18, nothing is impossible. So God takes Sarah, who is infertile and menopausal, and God takes Abraham, who is 100 years old, and he somehow causes what is naturally impossible to happen. Now this right here, what we see in this passage, is the definition of a miracle. Now I want to point out that we have a habit in our day of calling anything and everything a miracle. Well, it's a miracle that I made it to work today. You know, or it's a miracle that I did this or that. And now, particularly when it comes to having children... We tend to look at that beautiful little baby and say, that's a miracle. And life is a miracle. I will acknowledge that. But I've had three children. And I will say that the whole process of pregnancy and birth and all of that, it is a beautiful thing. It is wonderful. And to hold your little baby girl or little baby boy in your arms and look at that face and realize that that is a a part of you, that they, they came from you and they are extending your family and your name, that's a beautiful thing. But it happens every day. It happens every day, all day. In hospitals and in houses and in, in places all around this world. But it never happens that the baby comes from a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. That never happens, right? That is a miracle. The fact that God would take what is naturally impossible and make it possible is a miracle. What naturally occurs is God's providence and His provision for His creation. But what unnaturally occurs is God supernaturally acting in the lives of Abraham and Sarah to bring about what man cannot do. The second thing we see in this this particular passage is the joy of the promise. We find Sarah in these verses is overjoyed by the birth of her new son. And she does this really neat thing. Remember, if you remember, what does Isaac's name mean? Do you remember? It means laughter. And so she does this really poetic play on the name laughter by saying God has made me laughter. He has made me to laugh. In other words, He's made this child for me. Okay, This child that is named laughter has made me laugh. And therefore, 
she has this sense of being overjoyed at the birth of her new son. And she praises God for the fact that God has given her laughter and he has brought about a great celebration and joy in her life. And notice that she gives God all the credit for this joy. Because there's no one else that could get the credit. Abraham doesn't get the credit because Abraham was just a stupid old man that tried everything else to have a child except for the plan that God had given him. She doesn't get the credit because she too was a stupid woman that tried to give her birthright, her, the right to her own child away to her slave girl and ultimately that brought about strife. Brothers and sisters, the fulfillment of God's promises in our lives should be a source of joy. But oftentimes, we just overlook it. When a new believer comes and is baptized in our church or in any church, that should be a source of laughter and joy because God has kept His promises. When our church or any other church grows and begins to have new people coming and we are able to do new things and have, uh, uh, that we haven't been able to do in a long time, that should be a source of joy and laughter. When God answers prayers by healing someone or bringing them out of a trial, it should be a source of laughter and joy. But what do we do? We get aggravated at the inconvenience of a new member who doesn't know how we've always done things. We get sore over the inconvenience of new faces and new opinions. We totally ignore God's work in someone's life or just write it off as the miracle of modern science rather than the provision of God. There should be something for us in this church every week that we can come into this house and praise God for because He has been faithful to fulfill His promises to us. In the smallest of things and in the largest of things, we should be overjoyed and laugh with the joy of the Lord because of His faithfulness to us in our lives. The second point that I want you to see from this text is I want you to notice the Son of Works in verses 8 through 21. We find out in verse 8 that a little time later, Abraham throws this birthday party for Isaac. Now, um, it says that they waited until he was weaned to throw the party. Now, the reason for this is back in those days, the, um, the infant mortality rate was very high. And so oftentimes, Jewish families wouldn't name their child until after a year because you didn't know if the child was going to survive or not. So you would wait at least a year before you named your child. And then also on top of that, the mother would often wean, I mean, often nurse the child for three years. Because if you think about it, Abraham and Sarah, for example, were nomadic people. They didn't go, if they didn't have anything in the freezer, which they didn't have, they, would, they couldn't go to McDonald's and order something to eat and have it within five to ten minutes. That is, unless you order ice cream, because the ice cream machine at McDonald's is always broken. But uh, that's just a, a complaint I have. Um, but, the, but if you... 
They couldn't just go and conveniently order something or run to Walmart and get something. They did not have what we call food security in their day. They weren't able to just rely on it. So in order to ensure that a child grew up healthy and got past those early years of disease and and infant death, they would nurse their children till at least three years of age. And so likely this is around the age of three for Isaac that Sarah has decided to wean him. And so they have this big celebration because the child has made it through all those childhood diseases, the potential for the childhood diseases that you get within those first three years. He's healthy. It's time to name him and to celebrate his life. But there's a problem. That little suggestion that Sarah made back earlier in life that Abraham sleep with her slave Hagar, that little problem, that little sin has grown up. And now that child is uh, Ishmael is around 16 to 18 years old. And like every 16 or a lot of, I shouldn't say every, a lot of 16 to 18 year old boys, he's a little punk. <laughs> And he see it doesn't it's not real clear what happens here. Either he looks at his brother Isaac, his half brother Isaac, and he makes fun of him. He laughs at him as the translate as my translation says. He's mocking him or something a little more nefarious is happening here. Some commentators believe that he is actually abusing Isaac. But whatever the case, Sarah is having none of it. And so she circles back to the idea of putting out Hagar and Ishmael. But this time around, Abraham is sought out by God and God tells Abraham to let the boy and the woman go. And he reminds Abraham, first of all, that the promise is through Isaac. And secondly, that God will keep his promise to to protect and make Ishmael into a great nation. So Ishmael and Hagar leave and they head out into the desert of Saudi Arabia. And when they get out there, they get towards the land of Beersheba and they're wandering around there and they run out of water and they're in desperate straits to the point that apparently Ishmael is fainted. He's dehydrated to the point that he can't move anymore. So uh, Hagar takes Ishmael and she lays him under a tree. And she goes out about 100 yards away. And she sits down and she waits on her son to die. And at this end of her rope, at the point that she could no longer do anything to save herself or to save her son, God comes to her. And God, through the angel of the Lord, appears to her and reiterates the promise that He made way back to her when Abraham had cast her out before. And then He reveals, He opens her eyes to see a hidden spring of water that saves their lives. There are two things I want you to notice from this. First of all, Notice that in verse 14, it says that they stopped in the wilderness of Beersheba. Do you know where the wilderness of Beersheba is today? 
It's a place called Mecca. Now Mecca, if you know anything about Islam, is the holiest of holies for the religion of Islam. You see, God kept his promise to Hagar. And Ishmael did become a great nation. The descendants of Ishmael are the Arabs of the Middle East. One descendant of Ishmael named Muhammad took parts of Christianity and parts of Judaism and he mixed them together and he came up with a religion that we know as Islam. The place that he chose as the holiest of places for that religion, the place where millions of Muslims go every year to worship a false god, is the same place that God spoke to Hagar and saved Ishmael. Now I want you to understand for this, from this that God has a plan for all peoples. He has a plan to save people from every tribe, including from the tribe of Ishmael. Now be careful in this, brothers and sisters, that you do not despise a race of people because God does not. Just as he saved Hagar and Ishmael and kept his promise to them, God can and will save the Arabs and the Muslims that now war against him through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, once again, God proves himself to be the God who sees even the one who is the most despised and the most forgotten. Hagar was ready to die. And it is at that point that God intervened in her life to save her and her son. And she has done everything by the book, according to the way the world says it. She married up in the world. She tried to gain a top position by ousting everyone else. She used her influence, whatever it was, to get what she wanted, how she wanted it. She had gone from a slave girl in Egypt to the wife of an influential and wealthy nomad in no time at all. And all of that scheme had brought her to the point of death. It is at this point when she was at her wit's end, unable to do anything to save herself or her son, that God acted. Have you ever wondered why God didn't intervene earlier? Why, why did God not say as she left? Why did God not come to her as she left Abraham and say, look, you're going to go out into this desert. Just want you to know ahead of time there's a spring out there. Why is it that God waited till her son was near death and she had given up all hope to then intervene? He didn't. He waited till then because she was not ready to be saved. If you think that you, have, you are earning your way to heaven, if you think that you can get recognition for all the work that you've done in the community or the church, earning your crown for all the times that you attended or uh, whatever else you did, then you are like Hagar. You are living by your own works and your own wit. If you find yourself flat of your back, wondering how you can ever make it and how you can ever be accepted before God or how God could ever save you, then take heart because that is when God will do His work. God wants you 
to be at the point in your life where you cannot do it yourself to recognize that you must have him to be saved. And that's where Hagar found herself. And so my final point is the analogy of grace. And to see this, if you would, flip over to Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 28. Galatians 4, 21 through 28. Paul says this, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. In this passage, Paul uses this very story from Genesis chapter 21 as an analogy for what God does in salvation. He reminds us that Abraham had two sons. One son was the son of a free woman, and the other was the son of a slave girl. One was born as the child of promise. And one was born as the child of a conniving scheme. Paul says that if you are trying to live by the law to earn God's favor, then you are a child of the slave woman. The reason is, is that the law is good, but the law can do nothing but enslave us because we are sinful. And so when we try to earn God's favor by doing the things of the law and saying, look, God, at how good of a person I am. You need to accept me because I've done all these things, even from my youth. Then guess what? We haven't done them enough. We haven't done them well enough. We haven't done them with the right intentions. We haven't done them out of a good heart. And therefore, because we have failed God in our obedience to the law, we are enslaved. By the law, just like Hagar thought that her schemes and her plans could somehow make her acceptable before her husband and before God. Ultimately, they brought her nothing but desolation and despair. And it was only by God's grace and provision for her that she was saved. So, too, we cannot be saved by the works of our Uh, the works we do, the good works that we bring before God. We cannot do enough. And yet, there's another child. There's a child of promise. And Paul says that if you are trusting in the promise of God, if you are trusting that what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ, is enough to save you, 
If you trust that the resurrection that Jesus has accomplished and will accomplish for you is enough and that you trust in the promise that one day he will make all things new, then you are a child of the promise. And the hope that you have in that is that God is a God who keeps his promises. God is faithful even when we are faithless. And God will continue to work so that we might know He is the God who keeps His promises. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, You are indeed the God of promise. You are the God who does what we cannot do. Lord, even as Hagar sought to to find a way on her own, sought to gain and to be more than she was, yet she failed miserably and ultimately needed your grace to bring her back and to restore her life and the life of her son. Lord, Abraham and Sarah are not any better in that they sought every way possible to fulfill your promises for you. And yet, God, you were faithful to them, even when in their sin, even in their rebellion, even when they would not listen or do as you called them to do. Yet, God, you are still faithful to us. And you are faithful when we are sinful, when we are, fail miserably, when we seek through schemes and plans to bring about your purposes for our lives without your involvement. So, Father, forgive us for our sins. Give us courage as we leave this place to trust in you and to know that you are with us as we go. Father, may we be light in this community and salt in this community as we take your word of promise to a lost and dying world. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.